Hello. Hi, Rebecca. It's Beatrice. Hi, Beatrice. It's Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm back from my holiday, back to rainy London. Yeah, yeah. And cold London as well. It is, but I'm okay with that. I'm kind of... I'm ready for my my cashmere. I'm, it, you know, it's cooling me, and I'm ready to wear it. Yeah, I think I'm I'm ready for tights now. I think. Oh yes, tights are nice too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we don't need to worry too much about the weather. No, I think I think we're mentally and physically ready. Yeah. For okay. that moment. Okay. So I I think it will be all right. Yeah. Although I'm not I'm not so good with rain because I don't have many practical clothes, but I can get my trench coat out. It's okay. Yeah, I don't like umbrellas. I don't. They're just annoying, mm. aren't they? Mm. And you forget them and yeah. they're wet. Uh, and... Yeah, they're horrible when they're wet. I mm. mean, where are you supposed to put them? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So, either. yeah, we could do that the wet, but the cold, we're fine. Okay, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yes. And what have you been up to? Have you been doing any teaching yet? No, it won't start for another few weeks. So I've been trying to get my things together. So what we normally do is we look at different sources to do with um, interwar period and particularly... Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I'm particularly looking at London and one of the sort of things we do, it's almost a little bit like a book club. We sort of read Vile Bodies, Evelyn Waugh's novel oh, that's together. Good. So, and then, then we talk about it. So even though I've read it now so often, because I've been doing this for a few years, I always need to sort of get myself yes um so remind myself what it what it is all about um so i've been looking trying to put some powerpoints together and stuff and i'm I'm just looking at a picture of some of the bright young things in in fancy dress um in, oh really yes so cecil beaton and stephen tennant and... oh i know is that picture where they they're sort of sitting on a a fence or something uh i think it's from the same day but that this one right. this one they're sitting on the grass and they're quite heavily made up good for them yeah good for them <laughs> so um yeah that i've been sort of been doing that and you know he's even voice is sort of difficult difficult character and the um his how he describes london is very white um so i'm trying right. to do something about that because that's not necessarily how it was so um i don't know i'm trying to sort of reread have you ever read black london by mark montera no that might, sounds interesting i might not have pronounced his name name properly but it's really interesting it's um you know a lot of the time people think um sort of people of color first come came with a windrush and his mm. book is about the earlier period and the people who were here so that's that's really interesting but it's it's actually still, nevertheless, really hard to find pictorial evidence of um, yes. people of colour of the sort of before the Second World War. So I've been trying to do that a bit. About a year or two ago, there was this project that the National Portrait Gallery did with um, ABP. Yes. And look, re-looking at their collection. But weirdly enough, they also more or less left out the interwar period. So that... It's funny, isn't mm. it? Because I've been... Tr- yeah, as you've been talking, I've been thinking... Because because their, uh, their website is brilliant for because you can look by a decade, can't you? Mm, mm. Um, but no, the interwar period... Because I was thinking there's, like, brilliant photographs of 
I mean, not black, but there's the, there's like the Indian regiments yes. mm. that were in the war, for example. Mm. Um, and I can think of African Americans in the war mm. and post, but into war. But I mean, I, I've also been reading um, Barack Between the Wars by Jane Stevenson. I've only got a li- haven't got that far into it yet. Um, but that's really interesting because it talks about how it's like looking at how England particularly, but Britain was not as strictly modernist as, as you know, America and um, Europe, mainland Europe, and how there's much more kind of Baroque expressive elements within, you know, literature, music, design, etc. And that talks about how there wasn't a great black print great as in huge black presence within the arts in the UK. Yeah, I think in that respect, it's quite different from New York. Yes, And and Paris, for that matter, I think. Well, I've just been reading a book which talks about how black artists found it really frustrating when they came to the UK, because even though they were American, they were, the British expected them to be African and referred Mm. to them as African and wanted them to perform in an African way. And so it was really kind of frustrating and restrictive because of what the audience expected and kind of oppressing what they actually, what performers actually wanted to present and do. And they said that it was similar in Paris, but there was more scope. So I think in Paris, there was far more scope, but still a tendency to link to Africanness rather than to see black performers as ref- you know representatives of Americanness and American art, jazz, music, etc. Yeah, I mean if you think of um Josephine Baker mm. and how she, you know how she performed. Um, well, especially in the earlier period, yeah, in the like early she period. Dev- she's, mm. she's almost like allowed in inverted commas to to develop because mm. she gained such sort of presence and celebrity. But it's very, very restrictive, I think, of of how people of colour are viewed during that period. So it's quite difficult. Mm. Um, I mean, what, what this book is talking about is how important queerness was to this idea of the Baroque in the interwar period. So people like Cecil Beaton and Evelyn Waugh, but also... Um, I mean, I think it's fascinating that Dorothy Todd and Madge Garland, who were like the yes. editor-in-chief and then fashion editor of British Vogue, were both gay. Mm. And so British Vogue in the 20s is, is really quite queer. And, and, I, and I think it's really interesting as well that it's like in a city, there's like overlapping cities and separate cities cohabiting, really. And so it's like there are nightclubs that were lesbian or gay or you know that were were catering to subgroups of of the main culture but you know sort of mainstream culture is completely oblivious probably to this and i was reading about all the kind of you know like um musical songs and things which were actually about gayness but the audience wouldn't necessarily know that yeah i was i've been wondering about that in terms of um wild bodies because there yeah. is this particular character and you know how war always gives them sort of pseudo funny names i yes. don't usually find them very funny but um this one is this particular character is called miles malpractice and um i yeah and i, I have... um 
I do, and there's sort of jokes about um, chauffeurs that live with him and stuff like that. And, yes. But I, again, I, it's, it doesn't seem so subtle now in a way, but I, I still think you could overread it. You could just not notice it, but I, yes. I'm not quite sure what people would have would have made of it at, at the time. No, I mean, I think, I think people, a lot of people were oblivious and... You know, because like Vogue, I mean, the reason Dorothy Todd gets sacked supposedly is because it became too kind of arty and avant-garde because she was commissioning, like, leading avant-garde writers of the time and it became too sort of esoteric according to, you know, Condé Nast. But if you look at it, it is very androgynous, a lot of the style that's being projected at the time. But then fashion was quite androgynous at that Mm. period. But it is kind of... It's really interesting how it's like it's just a bit more androgynous. Do you know what I mean? It mm. leans just a bit more towards masculinity than the kind of pretty adolescent boy androgyny, mm. which was sort of fashion androgyny. And and I think it's really interesting those like really fine lines within dress and self styling that put you one side or the other side in terms of this period yeah that is super interesting at one point i was you know i know i keep going on about this but we have the the bassano archive at the museum and i was sort of oh looking, but it's so good yeah it is amazing i was looking through that because there are sort of quite a lot of um photos of women wearing um ties with their shirt yes. and and then i was sort of looking at the times and that there's a sort of period where they keep calling it mannish um right. in, the, in the advertisement but without any sort of it sounds like it there's no um hinterland there or you know it just that that's yes. just what it was called it was called mannish modes and um they said oh our newest mannish modes for the women who like tweed and now you think hmm is there something yes. else they're trying to say here but i it's yeah a, it's a, an ad for whatever Devonham and freebody in in the times so i don't think there is and then you look at um, who's the famous writer who wrote The Well of Loneliness. Oh, Radcliffe Hall. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah, it is really quite a fine line. Um, it is. I mean, she's really interesting because she wears kind of complete drag as a man rather than the kind of Dietrich. Yes. Mannish clothes, but then incredibly pretty makeup and soft, soft, curly blonde mm. hair, mm. which and- is usually the... Is, is the kind of indicator that this is someone toying with androgyny to highlight femininity. Yes. Mm. Rather than Radcliffe Hall, who is kind of inhabiting an alternative form of dress and a form which is kind of critiquing femininity as well. Yeah, you're right. It's quite a different, quite a different thing. Um... Yeah. I mean, it, it was also in the, in the Jane Stevenson book, it talks about how it's kind of a myth that there was this excess of women after the war, but that that was very much the sort of popular idea. And so it was completely not questioned at all for women to live together. It was seen as sort of companionship and friendship, but also, you know, for practical reasons that it's cheaper and that kind of thing. Mm. So women could be living together for a number of different reasons, so it wouldn't necessarily be read as they are a couple, mm. a romantic couple. But it is, yeah, it's so interesting. And I always think there needs to be a deeper and wider history of um, lesbianism and fashion because 
there's so much said about gay men in fashion yeah. and how important they've been in, you know, all aspects of kind of fashion and self-presentation. But you tend, to, I mean, there's that brilliant Christopher Reed essay in the Vogue edition of Fashion Theory, mm-hmm. where he talks about Madge Garland and Dorothy Todd and queerness in fashion, in, in vogue at that period. But there's not very much beyond mm-hmm. that, is there? And I kind of think that it's not the case that there were only lesbian women in fashion then mm. and having an influence then. Yeah, that's we need really... We need mm. more understanding of female queer, like female yeah. queerness. Yeah, that's really As a major influence in fashion, mm. you know, and there's like occasionally, and it's just, it's again, it's kind of trivialising women and women's contribution because it's like occasionally they'll kind of say, Vionnet, was she gay? Yeah. But it's like, that's the level or, you know, Chanel, did she have female lovers? It's like, that's the mm. level, it's kind of gossipy and salacious, not valuing queerness as something women can project and design and, yeah and how it contrib- might have contributed to an aesthetic yes um, exactly exactly it's interesting that you say it, it sort of comes up in connection with a baroque aesthetic which is not mm. what i would think that's yeah uh, mm. no it's a really interesting book it's the one i told you about last week there's yes. a chapter on silver paper but i haven't got <laughs> to silver paper yet because it was the last week on holiday so i was messing about instead of reading books Mm. but it is really interesting and it talks a lot about how like the importance of of kind of aristocratic patrons and like not salons but kind of pseudo salons for people to get um sort of sponsorship within the arts and to be supported within the arts which is quite interesting as well Mm. um so it talks about the sitwells who i'm not very fond of no me neither I mean, I don't agree with everything in the book so far. I think it's really super interesting. No, um, I really, I've ordered it. It sounded so oh, good. Have you? Yeah, I haven't got it's it yet. It's so interesting. Yeah, it, no, sounded... it is. It's really, really interesting. And I um, find it also. Um, I I've been trying to find while talking to you, but I can't find it. You know, Sasha Llewellyn, she wrote this book and and did an exhibition on, um, and Liz Llewellyn generally the the gallery yeah. how they're sort of looking at not some not sort of traditionally modernist well traditionally modernist seems to be a weird thing to say but um art but sort of more um figurative art yeah and there was this exhibition and book um, i really must get it and there's that's sort of really interesting and sort of readdressing of what what was going on and it wasn't like you say it wasn't all Mondrian and abstract exactly exactly it's so much more complicated mm, than that mm. I mean what it also made me wonder about is the role of of like outsider art in this period which I really have no idea about because it the book is really interesting but it's very much social elites Mm. or people who are being largely sponsored by social elites and I mean it's good because she's really kind of critiquing the sort of high modernist view of the you know the canon and of you know a hierarchy of the arts which as you know which we do not like we do not like the hierarchy we do not recognize it um but it made me kind of wonder about outside of art because it's very much like if you were working class you just weren't creating and I kind of think well yes and no because obviously there's like a point in financial hardship where you just have to work and that's all you Mm. have time to do or just survive. But 
I don't know that I, w- I was wondering if in the in in the Museum of London collection if there's any examples of like outside art for this period or other periods. <sighs> I'm not I'm not so sure that's a good question, but I I don't think so necessarily. Well, maybe maybe photography, but I'm I'm not. All oh, so... right, so like because because that's the thing you can kind of it may not like be art fine art, but like. Vernacular photography and film. Film, I think, includes yeah. really creative um, fiction film as well as non-fiction film, which is exploring. And I know that's often middle-class people, but still, it's like a different group. That the book tends to focus on, like a trickle-down view. Which again, I think it's. It, I mean, it's not as simplistic as that. It's a very, very good book. Mm. Um, but I kind of would like it to sort of address, and like even like home dressmaking. Mm. is creative because so many people who are home dressmaking are not just strictly following a pattern they're adapting it for their body their own taste you know they're choosing colors that they like rather than the fashionable colors so I think there's kind of a pushback as well that again might be quite baroque because I think even within like British because I was thinking about London couturiers you know like the way that they're wanting to be seen as fashion designers at this period Mm. and I think you know as someone who you know although I completely wholeheartedly support the book I'm so much more of a purist strip Mm. it back severe as possible kind of person and I think I find London couture difficult because it is more baroque in many cases in that there is am I completely talking nonsense but it seems to me that it's more decorative it's more kind of additions being added onto the figure rather than paring down. I think it is, again, um, there's lots of speculation this week. Ah, okay, we're just speculating. But I think, what I'm about to say is probably not speculation, but a lot of the designers like Hartnell, for instance, that come from a, seem to come from a... um, love of the theatre so you right, know Hartnell was in Footlights, Stiebel was in Footlights and I mean yes. Stiebel doesn't start, start until 32 but right. I think Hardy Amos was was he in Footlights I'm not sure um but oh, I don't so, know about him. The, so there's I think with Hartnell definitely he he loves over the top stuff and the theatre mm. And, um, I mean, theatre doesn't necessarily have to be over the top, but I think he really no, does it... like sequins and feathers and, you know, exuberance. Um, yes, so... and a kind of, like, costume element. Yes, exactly, yeah. So, which is interesting because then there, of course, is also the other side, which is the country life. Yes, of course. A simple, more simple tweet thing going on. So... Uh, and maybe there is maybe that's part of the reason why you get it the the other end of the s- scale. True. I don't I don't know. Um, but this this sort of almost like a project that Viennet has or or Chanel. I'm yes. not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure that exists. But there's also almost a little bit of a gap in terms of, you know, there's Lucille, and I. I of course, think, but she's very she's baroque rather. Yeah, than... I think she I never mean, adapted even... to the sort of. That that was just wasn't her thing. I think she couldn't adapt to the to the more sort of modernist aesthetic. Yes. And then Hartnell starts relatively late in a way. I can't remember when, but I think it's the early twenties. There's almost a little bit of a gap of, um, well, that there's sort of obviously other people working here, but yeah, 
but there is a bit of a gap of sort of really well-known people and sort of the equivalence of Ch- Chanel or, or yes. Vianney, I think I think because it and it's interesting that obviously the the sort of changes in fashion the roots are before the war and then during the war there's an interruption but not a complete interruption in the way that there is in the second world war mm. and there's really over the top like the 18th century revival during the the first world war is kind of insane with panniers and, yeah. and bell skirts and things i mean i think i think that is really not spoken about very much partly because i think it's so difficult to even understand from our perspective because it's so over the top yeah and i think people i say people but i'm i'm, I'm including myself in people is this mm. sort of it's nice to have a linearity something going to yeah. in a direction it's the same with i always think in the late 20s um or early 30s when it becomes quite romantic the fashions mm. and i always mm. think that's a bit weird and I almost want that to go away and I don't want to think about yeah, it. Yeah, well, but... it, it is that annoying thing of like decadism where people want everything yeah. to be very neat and it's not, it, you know, history is messy. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting and I will read my silver paper chapter yes. soon so because I think I, I feel I owe you a yeah, but by next week I might have read it as well. I might start. Oh my with, lord, that would be so start exciting. With that one. Um, but what what else have you been what else have you been up to? Um... Well, well, my exciting thing is when I got home, mm-hmm. um, there was Hearts magazine waiting for me, which is this beautiful um, fashion and culture magazine um, put together by Clayton Crocker, and it's an American magazine. And that my article on Art Smith has come out, so I'm super excited and pleased. Oh, wow. But it's such a beautiful... I really like the cover. I must send you the... I must send you a picture of it. So it's the autumn-winter edition of Hearts. Mm-hmm. And it was just so lovely because, like, the edition is all on... Well, it kind of links to what we're talking about, of, of, of like, art and art as a mode of being and art as a sort of philosophical way of approaching design or writing or whatever it is you do and and quite a kind of modernist view of the idea that art can change things or can be like a mode of survival mm-hmm. almost and it was really nice because it's always such a luxury when someone says to you what would you like to write about because <laughs> it's just wonderful so it was a real opportunity for me because art smith is an african-american jeweler from uh, like his his sort of most creative period is like 40s to 70s or the 40s to 60s and I he was someone who because I read so much on mid-century modern and I'm obsessed with that period he's someone I kept seeing references to Mm. or I'd see like one photograph and I never had time to kind of focus on him and really think about his work and really look at it so it was really lovely to just focus on him and he's such a fascinating figure because he is black, he's gay, he's, you know, he was based in Greenwich Village where a lot of the, like, modernist jewellers were focused. But what is interesting is because of his blackness and his gayness, he's kind of othered even within a bohemian milieu. Mm. So it was really quite shocking. There's a very good book, which I will not name, but there's a very good book, on jewellery of the period from the early 90s and it was quite shocking how because he's black his work is just related to african jewellery and there's one cuff which potentially does reference particular forms of african jewellery 
but it's like the assumption that you know and it keeps saying him going back to his roots and it's like he was born to jamaican parents <laughs> in cuba yeah. and moved to to new york um and lived in brooklyn from the age of three and you kind of think it's so problematic because yeah. on the one hand there's the idea of roots is really super important and of looking to your heritage in a deeper way that kind of goes beyond your family genealogy even but it's also again like we were saying before so kind of restricting and ignorant to just this person is black therefore it must link to africa mm. and and it's kind of really problematic because africa is so central and important and rich but on the other hand you mustn't assume things so it was really interesting anyway to look at him and they've chosen to put my favorite photograph of him as the image with the article which i just love which is him like he's wearing a black top and he's just got like his he did these amazing necklaces that are like well, I can only really describe it as like swirls of silver. It, and, and I think that's really amazing about his work is it's really, really mobile. He was really inspired by Calder and also Jean Arp. And you can really see that, that there's this sense of almost like with some of his work, I know this sounds a bit silly, but it's almost like it's trembling. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like it's it's like waiting to move or it, it like tricks your eye. So it's this it's this quite big silver... Um, like spiral necklace with a gemstone in the middle and he liked non-precious stones so that he often uses quite reflective stones and it's just so such a beautiful picture so I was re I'm really really happy that this has come out mm. and really happy to have had the opportunity to think about him so much I can't wait to see it do you know who his clients were or who well he it's always like the ones which are always, who are always picked out are Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. He was, I mean, he was really, really interested in jazz. So music is really important within his work. And it, as I say, it has, I think it has like a real kind of joy and mobility within a lot of his work. Um, and he made cufflinks. He, Duke Ellington's sister was a client of his. And he made cufflinks for Duke Ellington's birthday that included notes from Mood Indigo. Mm in them so that one is always cited and also he was asked by um a chapter of the naacp to make a brooch for eleanor roosevelt but i think sort of beyond the, those as like super famous names it's kind of interesting reading about the clients of this era for kind of modern jewelry because they were really sort of middle-class people who wanted to express something different through what they consumed. So wanted to express their like outlook on life and philosophy of life. And there's a real kind of sense of, on the one hand, a kind of fascination with Americanness and, and consumerism and everything, but also the anxiety of the era of like pre-war, war, and then Cold War. And this kind of sense that jewellery, modern jewellery, could be one something that's really close to your body and intimate, but is also very expressive. So it's something that's about something deeper within you. Mm. Um, and he also, again, links to what we were talking about. He, um, Sorry, I'm just going into a big stream of consciousness now. No, please now do, about, please do. Because <laughs> I just like him so much. I mean, what I felt is it's like he has this dual existence between being associated with a whole kind of really, really super creative network of black performers, artists, musicians of this era, and then his, like, the way that he's seen by the mainstream white press 
um, so he he frequents like Frank and Dorcas Neal's salon, and that was like a really like amazing salon that drew together like James Baldwin and Harry Belafonte and dancers and choreographers like Tally Beatty. And Tally Beatty was a big you know supporter of his. And I really loved this thing that apparently he did this brilliant. Sorry, I just love him so much. I'm just gushing. Um, he did this amazing necklace called Diminishing Spiral, which is this really long spiral necklace. And Tally Beatty had one, and it's the inter interlinked silver circles, and it kept getting tangled up because of Tally Beatty moving so much. So he had to keep coming back to Artemis' little store. <laughs> and I just love this because on the one hand, you could think how very annoying that this is like a design flaw. But on the other hand, I really like the way it sort of starts as this very ordered thing and then becomes chaotic in response to your body. But also the way that it keeps bringing the client back to, the, mm. back to Art Smith and continues their interaction and this, it's almost like this unruly object that they keep trying to control. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I really like that. Is his work still around? or? Well, it's very, very popular to be bought because, mm. I mean, it's so nice. Like, there's this one calf that I would like right now, but it costs <laughs> about $6,000. I think there's, there's sort of a market for modern jewellery in auction houses, mm. um, like, Cooper, not Cooper Union, that's where he studied. Cooper Hewitt has a nice collection of his work. And there's a few American collections that have his work. I was trying to see if there's any in this country because I really want to have a good look yeah. at it. And I couldn't, I couldn't find any mm. here. There was a show a few years ago at the V&A, but I don't think they actually... I think it was lent rather than they own one i must contact mm. the jewelry department but it's interesting because you know he worked for like best and co you know like popular department stores so he was selling things for like five dollars 95 mm. in department stores but then also working in this tiny little workshop in the village and it's interesting because he starts off in one street in the village um and because of his blackness he was just continually attacked so he moved just a few streets away but it was a much more open place that he was living so he was he was kind of safer there but it's really kind of shocking because i think you have this idea of greenwich village as just yeah, really open and liberal and, yeah exactly exactly and, yeah. and, mm. and it's you know this kind of exclusion even within a supposedly liberal environment and, mm. and it's quite shocking um and it's it, there's a very funny well, funny, I don't know, funny, ha-ha, funny, peculiar. Issue. I'm just trying to find the date of Life magazine from November 2nd, 1953, with an issue, with a little article called Village Pickings, which is like, it's almost like you're going, it's like very anthropological as though you're going on this, you know, exploration into wild territory oh, really? mm. to go to Greenwich Village boutiques and there's this sort of young lady model who, you know, it's like, it's basically sort of saying it is actually safe and okay to go to some of these places. Because um, it, can I just read you the quote? It's quite yes. funny. It says, New York's Greenwich Village, long an outpost of sloppy local bohemian individualists, is now finding itself host to fashionable individualists from all over town. So it's kind of saying, you know, and that includes that you can go to art smith shop and buy brass earrings because he liked bass metals mm. and so it's it's sort of quite weird that he's being sold in like bloomingdale's and best and co 
which are very mainstream. But then to actually go to his studio, you'd have to be a brave soul, <laughs> yeah. apparently, um, to go there. And there's a really beautiful, I'm, I'm going to post tomorrow, there's a couple of really beautiful photographs by Louise Dahl-Wolf that include his jewellery. So, of course, this was like blew my mind yeah. because it brought together my favourite female mid-century sportswear designers, Louise Dahl-Wolf, Art Smith. It's just like too much for me really yeah. to even cope with triple whammy Tri- triple whammy so yes you must get a copy yeah no i definitely Hearts magazine issue five okay i definitely will just and one yeah, the, quick thing i yeah. it, it was just it, when you were just saying this what life said it reminded a bit how they were talking about the um existentialists in paris you know it was also oh, yes. going into this strange land underground where these weird people live and it yeah this this what you've just said about it almost being like an anthropologist's account i know i know it's like your indiana jones mm, mm. and that you need to have courage yeah that's... exactly mm. and it again comes back to this thing which is just endlessly fascinating of of how cities are zoned by town yes. planners but then they're rezoned by their inhabitants and their use of different areas aren't they mm. That sounds so like interesting. that would be a really good yes. exhibition. Not easy to pull off, oh, though, as yes. an exhibition. But, yeah, that it could be... It would be very good. Yeah. Well, yeah. on that note... On that note, we can just sit quietly now and think about what zone we inhabit. Yes, and what jewellery we would like to wear. I definitely would like some Art Smith jewellery, please. Yes, it sounds like yes. it. All right, I'm going to send you lots of pictures now. Okay, thank you. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.